Hey there, welcome to another episode of Bill Selleck Talks. My name is Bill Selleck. This is me talking. And guess where we are? We are at three digits. 100 episodes, 100 episodes. Can you believe it? My voice went high like when Brian Briggs gets excited. Wow. Although looking back, I could have just done my first episode as episode 1.00, and that would still be three digits. But here we are. We asked some friends what to do, and they suggested a retrospective. So here we are, Bill Selleck Talks, a retrospective. I took transcripts from the first 99 podcasts, ran them through transcription, put those together just for simplicity's sake into four documents. So I have a text document of episodes 1 to 25, 1 to 26 to 50, and on and on. Uploaded all of those into a custom GPT in ChatGPT Pro Plus, Pro, whatever it's called, and trained it on my podcast, which is pretty cool. I actually ran into quite a bit of issues where it just said network error. I was like, there's not, there's not a network error and all kinds of other random errors, but not the point. The point is I was able to get six different categories, six different themes. And I looked at those and actually spent a, a bit of time kind of reading what ChatGPT saw as trends and anecdotes. I took each of those six and asked for about five anecdotes per bucket. And when I got through it, read through it a few times, I've been sitting with this for about a week now, got it down to four buckets, four categories of where this podcast has been in the first 99 episodes all the way back from 2008. Where's the first episode? Let's log on to my server real quick and figure out when was the first, back when I called it EdTech BillTech. I'll oh, see it's showing this 2021. I'm pretty sure it was 2008. I do not do a daily episode. I do not do a weekly episode. So it's taken a while to get to 100. But we are here. We're here at 100 episodes. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. So I took all those buckets since 2008. That's been 15 years. What? Wow. So over 15 years, technology has changed so, so much. Me as an educator and a human, I've changed quite a bit as well. But there's definitely some through lines. So we're going to talk about these four buckets. And I've got a couple stories for you. You can also go back and listen to other episodes. Um, some of them I completely forgot about. Others you're going to be like, yep, he sure talks about that. So there's a whole bucket, a category of just general tech integration. There's one more specifically around student engagement. Looking with my admin hat on, managing change. And finally, kind of a catch-all, just personal experiences, personal reflections, stories of my life and connections to technology in schools. So let's just jump right in, shall we? Because I've got some good stories. And welcome to episode 100. The last thing I'm going to say before I jump into it, there's a new theme song. I think I'm going to keep noodling with this, but instead of waiting until it's just right, it'll be maybe a tiny bit different each time. Um, I might just give you the draft of it in GarageBand, which is not um, a real bass guitar or a real guitar guitar, but it's just... Um, a software instrument, but it sounds pretty good. The, the thing I found is that as you record instruments for reels, when you're trying to do one with software instruments in GarageBand or Logic Pro or whatever, you can get them to sound pretty good. 
So I think I might just leave in, I, I haven't finalized the intro music yet, even though you've already heard it. I think we're just going to do the garage band draft that I have. And then as time goes on, I'll add a real bass and a real guitar, or maybe I'll just fall in love, as will you, with um, the demo version of the new podcast intro. So first bucket, in general, tech integration. The biggest thing, and I, I love I love that ChatGPT analyzed 99 podcast episodes and pulled out themes, because some of it I'm just like, ooh, this is this is wrong. This is not like, I'm not, I'm not feeling this, but others I was like, Oh yes. Either things I've forgotten because it's been 15 years or things that, that I hadn't quite noticed as kind of a trend. So the first one is the importance for educators to try new things. And the idea that new things might not always work out as planned. And this is, this is a good thing. I actually learned this initially from Rushton Hurley, where he encourages teachers in his presentations and keynotes to take a risk and try a new thing. If nothing else, you as that teacher might be the only example those kids see of an adult failing gracefully. And I think that's incredibly powerful, and that, that continues to be something I think of as I try new technology things with teachers and with students. The next thing the SAMR model. I've talked about it a handful of times. My twist on it, and I had forgotten it, that it, this particular episode, but I think it encapsulates a lot of what I've talked about over the last 15 years. And how is it that I've been in education long enough to have a podcast for 15 years? Can we take a moment? Just, it doesn't feel like that. Like when I started out, I thought teachers that had been teaching this long would, would feel differently. I don't know. I still feel like me. But my take on the SAMR model is that it's not about using more technology. So many times people are like, all right, whatever, substitution, augmentation, um, modification, let's jump to the redefinition. How do we redefine learning using technology? And like, that's what SAMR is. But actually, it's not, it's not true. It's not about using more tech, but it's about using what you have effectively. And so many times substitution or augmentation is an amazing way to have technology in a lesson. It doesn't have to be the whole thing. Um, I loved that reminder. One other part that fits in this general um, kind of bucket of tech integration is learning alongside students. So this goes right with kind of the lesson I learned with Rushton, is that you don't have to be the expert at the thing, that it's okay to have that beginner's mindset and say like, let's see how this works. And then that, that's actually an incredibly powerful stance to take as an educator, whether you're in the classroom or any sort of admin. Two sides to this is um, I definitely saw a trend, and I'm hoping it just becomes how we do school and how we use technology, is that inclusivity is an important part of integrating technology. Inclusivity is an important part of being human and and working at a school, but in particular, normalizing conversations around privilege, normalizing conversations around inclusivity and accessibility are critically important. So if you're in a leadership space in ed tech, um, that's something that, that even as we're kind of moving on to the, the next thing, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, 
articles and, and focuses of schools kind of shift away from inclusivity, um, it's a big deal and it needs to not be a trend. The last thing I'm going to say in this first bucket of technology integration in general is parent education. So I think no matter what your role is in the education space, being able to teach parents about why you're doing what you're doing is so, so important. Um, I was looking back at, at transcripts and listening a little bit to some of my earlier episodes. And when I was teaching second grade, I was doing some really progressive things at a school that was not particularly progressive. My second graders were writing songs, making music videos, um, doing really cool stuff. And because the tech was limited, we tended to do a lot of it whole group. Now, depending on what a seven or eight year old might tell their parents, um, you might get a case of unreliable narrator where the parents going to be like, what are you doing? Why are you not teaching my kid how to read and write? And this was actually just, that, that didn't happen to me because it became me teaching the parents along with the students saying, this is what we're doing today. This is why we're doing this today. This is how your students are learning today and this week and this month and this school year. And I think by teaching the parents, this is why we're doing what we're doing, you get the buy-in and you get the support and you don't get, why are you doing this? Now, I think this works in a classroom, just sharing the why, particularly if you're doing um, more hands-on learning, more project-based learning, less traditional learning, which tends to be good learning, like when students are, are busy making and doing and collaborating, they are learning and thinking and remembering. Uh, but that's not a lot of what school looks like in the brains of some parents or administrators or politicians or insert whatever, whatever group you want. But if you can tell the story as a school, as a district, as an individual teacher, you're going to get that buy-in because it is a compelling story. So with that second bucket, student engagement, big picture, the importance of multimedia creation, making books, publishing books, making movies, publishing movies, distributing movies, making podcasts, blog posts, any kind of media, anything visual or aural. Big picture, being able to create helps students better synthesize knowledge. It connects really closely with Bloom's taxonomy. It enhances their understanding. It for sure enhances their engagement two different parts of this kind of subcategories is looking at songwriting as a learning tool. I've done this myself with teachers, with my own students. Um, it was my favorite conference presentation to do is we have one hour. We're going to write a song together. You want to learn about songwriting in the classroom? You want to learn about GarageBand? Cool. We're going to do it. <laughs> we're not going to talk about it. So it's the, the thing I, I keep coming back to again and again, I'm going to talk a little about this, the, the final bucket about personal experiences is that songwriting has a really special place where it's almost equal parts creative and analytical thinking. And so when you're doing that, you get like in second grade, like rhyming and syllable structure, um, all these things that, that you're like, how do I teach this besides just reading a poem? But you also get to write about different content area. 
So if your students are struggling with cardinal directions, write a song about never eat soggy waffles, right? The other kind of part of this is um, the ability to create really just any sort of thing. And, and I'm going to talk about this in a slightly different way. It's about having access to these tools, no longer having to go to college to get a music degree like I did to be able to record music. Like that theme song that was on my laptop in GarageBand in my office at a school. I didn't have to book recording studio space. I didn't have to have expertise or hire someone with expertise to help me record. I could just hit record in GarageBand. Now, granted, I had the expertise, um, which makes me move very quickly compared to most tech directors or teachers. And it also makes it sound better quicker. But everyone has these ideas. Our kindergartners have iPads. They can write their own theme songs. They can write their own music. They can open up Book Creator, write their own book, and publish their own book. With this website called YouTube, or as my mom calls it, the YouTubes, you can take that video and you can publish it. And that is amazing. I remember a time when Adam Bello was keynoting the ISTE conference in San Antonio. Was this 2014, perhaps? And he's giving examples of student creation. And my fifth graders are suddenly singing in a room with 5,000 people. I was just like, <laughs> wait, wait, what? <laughs> what is happening? And it's because we published that on YouTube. I shared it out. He was like, wow, this actually fits a theme I'm trying to share at this EdTech conference. Um, and he shined a spotlight on it. And it was like a deeply mind-blowing type of experience. But that idea, if we take a step back, that all of our students have access to making and publishing videos, books, blogs, podcasts, songs, albums, all of that, like it democratizes content creation and should be a significant shift in education and how we spend time in schools. One small part, and I'm not even going to try and connect these, but just uh, another quick story about this that I'd completely forgotten about is when, when coding was kind of the latest trend and, and there were all these different apps that would help you code. The ones that have lived on now have a paywall and get, get frustrated with it. But for about three years, you get these little mini drones that are the size of like an iPad mini and about as tall as like three iPad minis. You could connect it to an iPad, and at the time, you know, they're like probably iPad 3s. You could connect it, and then you could code them. So you could say like, when I push start, take off, move forward at 50% speed for three seconds, turn right 30 degrees, and, uh, <laughs> and you could code a drone through 3D space. It was amazing. Amazing. I had completely forgotten about that. Um, I love that just a, a simple drone, these things were like 30 to $50, which is not nothing, but compared to a $1,000 drone, that's quite inexpensive. It's such an engaging entry point into technology, into coding for students. And I just, I love that so, so much. The last big bucket around student engagement, and I had forgotten that this was, this is kind of the midpoint of, of the 99 episode podcast when our school Hillbrook 
founded the Scott Center for Social Entrepreneurship. And I was very excited about it at the time. It was a new thing. We didn't know what it would look like. It was how do we teach social entrepreneurship to students? How do we use the six pillars, design, civics, systems, finance, agency, and story to have students make a difference in the world? And very closely related to that are the two questions that we ask at the Scott Center for Social Entrepreneurship. What matters to you and what are you doing about it? Now, those two questions are simple, but they open so many doors. And if you're not sure how to dig into project-based learning, those two questions are an amazing way to get started. Also connecting with like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the UN SDGs, as they're often called, um, that's a great way to make a very broad idea of like what matters to you really specific, like clean water clean air, education, gender equity, things like this. Really good connections around what matters to you. So that is our second bucket, student engagement. Ready to put your admin hat on? Let's do that together. I don't have an actual hat, but I'm, I'm touching my headphones. So managing change, being an admin, being in the educational leadership space. And really what it means, I think, is adapting to the changing landscapes in education. The one that I think is most interesting, this is another one that, you know, ChatGPT helped me kind of develop this list and, and notice the trends. Um, and an anecdote that it pulled out was rethinking screen time and education. I remember moving out of the classroom into a tech director role um, in the summer of 2014. The big conversation around then was around screen time. And at some point, I had an episode where I was just like, oh man, like I don't think, I don't think that it's screen time bad. And for a long time, it was screen time bad. I think actually screen time can be really profoundly creative and educational. So like right now, I'm recording on my laptop that screen time. I would say most adults that have an office job are using their screens that entire time. So it's not screen time bad, no screen time good. I think there's, there's a balance and there's some, some pretty substantial research on both sides and you could argue a bunch of cases. But I think the traditional view of screen time bad can really be rethought when you look at all of these powerful things. So if you go back to the student engagement bucket, writing blog posts, writing books, making movies, making podcasts, writing songs, all of these things are so, so powerful. And being able to do that on a screen, I think is a really good use of time for any human. There are two very specific Hillbrook things. The one that I had forgotten is that um, at the time of the recording a few years back, we had, I was keeping track of all our devices, you know, inventory is a thing tech directors do. We had tripled the amount of devices on campus. And so one of my professional goals most years is to upgrade our school's technology infrastructure. And so being sure that the servers are up to date, that the network switches are up to date, you know, at this point I have pulled, not me personally, but we've pulled new fiber to every single building on campus. Nearly everything on campus in my tenure at Hillbrook I have purchased now. 
And so it's, it's wild just seeing the scale at which things change, even just looking around my office, like the little light on my desk that I use for video calls, that is Wi-Fi capable. The nano leaf lights behind me, those have Wi-Fi. You know, what, what else? Like the HomePod minis, the Apple TVs, like there's so many more devices on our network right now. And people are using them much, much more. And so the demand on the Wi-Fi and on the infrastructure just continues to grow. Um, I mean, even just students in a classroom, so many more now will have their school iPad and a watch and a phone. So it's every kid has three devices. So now a class of 20 kids has 60 devices in it. Um, that gets complicated quickly. And yeah, that's been something that's been on my mind for a while. It's not nearly as, as shiny and cool as like coding drones, but it's a thing. Um, the last thing in this bucket about managing change is the uh, developing of our makerspace that we call the hub. And this was a project that took about four years from really interviewing all of the, the people in kind of the science and the art classrooms that use the kind of traditional making tools, 3D printers, laser cutters, various hand tools and woodworking tools, and trying to figure out what are the needs amongst students and teachers, and then building a space to meet those needs. And I think as a, a big picture, it's really like this project, the hub, was in response to the evolving needs of educational technology. And to a larger extent, just hands-on learning or project-based learning. Last bucket. Are you ready? Personal experiences. It's time to get personal. So first bucket of this. I like to say buckets, don't I? I don't know what that's about. Looking at ed tech conferences, educational conferences, conferences in general. Two that come to mind are the ISTE conference and the Spring Q conference. So Obviously, these are chances to connect with other educators, keep up with the latest trends, have conversations. One part that I had forgotten about, I think this was at ISC 17 or 18, whichever one was in Chicago. I was at a Google for Education event. I was talking with Rebecca Hare. She's in St. Louis, amazing educator. And uh, she was presenting the next day about design and music or kind of art and music and her music teacher just canceled. And I was like, huh, I, at the time of this, I think I just, I, I had not been a music teacher for a few years, a couple years. I was like, I've taught elementary music for four years. And she was like, huh, like, do you need a substitute teacher presenter person? And so she and I ended up co-presenting around garage band and art and so she would the way i recall i think she was using keynote for this because you can do animations it was music into art and then art into music and so let me explain a little bit about what that means um and a lot of this just i i love i love so much about this let me explain the thing first so students write a piece of music and then in like in music class and then give it to the art class art class listens to it and then creates a visual of that if you use Keynote or any animation program, you can animate the shapes in. And she had some amazing examples of that. But then you can also do the, the different thing of like either take 
a piece of art, a static piece of art or some animation and then score it basically. So if you're using Keynote and you have different animations with different shapes moving around and, and different kind of evolving shapes, you basically put it to music as though it's a movie. And so just this idea is so cool, but the, the bigger picture of this and why I love this particular story is there's just so many serendipitous encounters at events when you are a connected educator um, that just are amazing. And I learned so much in that presentation. I was We were able to, to keep that um, as an ISTE conference presentation, right? She didn't have to cancel last minute. Um, and that was, that was really, really cool. That was a lot of fun. And it's a good reminder to, to stay connected to other educators. And it's also a reminder why most of my friends these days are passionate, creative, progressive educators. Another trend, and I had forgotten about, about how big of a deal this was at the time, is jumping in early, being an early adopter for Snapchat and for Instagram stories. And so much of, of the way I view Instagram these days is, is kind of the way it is now at the very end of 2023. But when Instagram stories came out, I remember doing like a presentation about like, what is Instagram stories? How is it like Snapchat? How might you use this as a teacher? Should, could teachers be using this? And so many people are like, well, what you're making expires in 24 hours. What's the point? And, and we, we're not going to jump into that. Like I've dug into that. That's the whole point of, of the previous 99 episodes. But I think staying curious and being willing to take a risk and try new things with new technologies for you and for me as an educator, as us as educators, is so, so important. Here's a new thing. I wonder what that would look like as me using it as a teacher, as a school admin, as a tech director, as an educator. I think just always that willingness to like filter whatever the new technology is through like an, a progressive educator's lens, uh, that has served me well. And I, I love that story of like, I think, I think Instagram might be a thing. <laughs> I think Snapchat might be a thing. Um, one other big theme and for a long time, I think kind of pre-AI, I was trying to kind of sort through this. And I, I feel like this, a lot of this podcast is me trying to um, put words to like kind of vague ideas. Like, I think there's something here. Let's talk through it and see if I can actually get to like a coherent thought at the end. Or maybe I get to the coherent thought and that's what I share. That's, I mean, hopefully, right? But the idea of the musician's lens. So... We all know about the scientific method and the way I hear a lot of science teachers talk about being a science teacher is they want their students to develop a scientific lens. So what's the equivalent of that in the arts, particularly in music? And so I think being able to develop like that musician's lens, being able to approach something through kind of a creative stance through like a generative, like creative and like I'm creating thing. Like I'm, I'm writing music, I'm making music, I am creating. So being able to create, I think that skill um, for students and then for adults as well is, is super, super important. The other part of that, that I think once I kind of got past the musician's lens kind of way of thinking is like me personally as an, 
educator, as a tech director, I am at my best when I'm co-creating with colleagues. When it's not just you do a thing, you do a thing, you do a thing, almost like how like kindergartners play. Like if, if there's like a sandbox or like a play structure, they tend to do parallel play. And I think a lot of adults do work that way. I do my part. You do your part. I need your help. Do this thing for me. You do part A, like we're, we're jigsawing it, right? Here's this big project. I'll do part one. You do part two. You do part three. You do part four. And then we all have all four parts done. Um, and that, I mean, that's fine for a bunch of things, but I think the, the real magic and, and one of my biggest strengths that, that I've been able to really like put into words is the ability to co-create with people that if we look at just music, I'm playing bass and I can play bass and it, it sounds fine. I can take guitar and I can play guitar and it sounds fine. But then if I'm playing bass and there's a drummer and a singer and a guitarist, suddenly there's a band and there's a song and there's music. And it's fundamentally different when I'm playing bass by myself than when I'm making music with a band. It's, it's that, you know, like the sum is greater than the parts kind of thing. But like, I, I have to have those people or it doesn't, it's not the thing. And so I think the education version of that is like how we collaborate with other teachers, how we collaborate um, with other teams, with other administrators, you know, again, kind of whatever your role is, like where are those opportunities where you build a thing and it couldn't exist in that way without you and it couldn't exist in this way without all the other people. Do you, can you actually like create a thing together that has to have everybody? And I think that that's a very particular style of leadership. And, and when I show up and can be in that space of co-creation, um, not only does it reflect kind of this idea of the musician's lens, but it reflects this idea of like we're, we're building something like really special and it really captures almost lightning in a bottle. Like this group of people made this thing and we're never going to have this exact group with this exact mindset in this exact time again. I think there's something really beautiful about that. The last thing, and I'm going to end you with this, is the, the last category of personal reflections is, is how we as educators pursue our passions and how we can connect it to education. So a lot, a lot of my episodes, I talk about a music thing and then connect it to a lesson in education. Whether I'm playing or listening or, or whatever, um, I tend to, to make connections around that. I think a lot of that stems from a deep, deep expertise I have around playing guitar, playing bass, working in a recording studio and recording music. And, and all of that is because my undergrad's a music degree. I think so much of this has influenced my thinking about education, my style of leadership, but also I think that the big picture of this last category is the importance of pursuing your passions for two parts, right? Like being able to connect it to education, but also just trusting that they will serve you well in the future. So when I was working in a recording studio, I could not fathom a world 
where kindergartners could record their own music and have it sound mostly professional. And you can do that with loops, right? Like if you just hit record and be like, here's a ukulele five-year-old, right? Not, not going to sound good, but you grab those loops, drag them in. And as long as everyone starts on beat one, all those instruments you dragged in, it's going to sound pretty good. And that kind of blows my mind. So all these kind of disparate things that I've done somehow not only inform the educator that I am, inform the educator I'm becoming, but also like serve me really well now. Even thinking back like to middle school when I would take two VCRs, one would push play, one would push record, and I would use that to edit videos. Like again, um, just now like at lunchtime, I saw um, I think it was sixth graders making their own movies using a variety of different apps, you know, mostly iMovie, to edit those movies. It's like, wow, like <laughs> we can do that now and we should, we should be doing that like way more, I think, than at schools than we typically do. Um, we don't need to get on that soapbox just yet. But the idea that, that like I spent a lot of time doing video editing and on the surface, you're like, well, it doesn't matter. Like that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily make you a better educator. And yet that expertise comes in. The ability, you know, as um, earlier on in this, way early in my podcast, I talked about the Photo A Day project, um, where for four different years, three were in a row, I took a photo every single day and published it every single day. And so back, this was at, 10 years ago, I think was my third one. So what, 13 years ago was my first Photo A Day project. Smartphones didn't have cameras. Well, there weren't really smartphones 13 years ago. Um, and whatever cameras came with your phone were not high quality cameras. And so it meant I was bringing a camera with me everywhere. I think I had a phone with me at all points. So it was like left pocket was phone, right pocket was camera, or maybe both were camera and my keys would be in the right pocket, right? Are you, are you tapping your pockets with me now? Keys in the right and then phone and camera in my left. And it was like reach for my camera, take a photo. And then every day it was connecting that SD card to a computer, opening Flickr.com, like pre-app era, pre-smartphone era, um, logging into Flickr.com, opening the folder, uploading the photo. But then it was also every day, you know, I, I was pretty committed to opening up Photoshop, editing the photo in Photoshop, because if you wanted any sort of more professional looking photos, you couldn't just go to the Photos app and hit Edit Auto. That, that was like, <laughs> this was years before. And so spending all of that time, and, and cumulatively it was about 1,100 photos that I took um, over you know three straight years, and then one more year right when Instagram came out, back when that was a photo sharing platform. And now being able to take photos you know, of my family, of school events, kind of stock-ish photos of like technology type things, being able to use all those different photos for conference presentations, for different assets, for videos I make, being able to shoot videos for me, for our school, for various things like being an Apple Distinguished Educator, and you've got to make an annual video. I, I got to get thinking on that. It's almost the end of the year. Um, and I'm going to make a video for that. I have to write a script. I have to take some photos, I have to shoot some video, I have to edit some video. So, so all of that, like my middle school editing with two VCRs is going to come into play in the next month when I make my ADE video. 
when we do our holiday card, um, which I think is coming up, holiday card is a video, by the way. When our school makes a, a video, we call it the holiday card. I don't know why, because it's, it's like a virtual card. Anyway, I like the sound of it. I'm, I'm in. Suddenly my expertise around video lighting comes into play. You know, around rule of thirds with photography comes into play when you're recording your boss saying happy holidays from Hillbrook. Um, you know, all of that, all of those passions that, that were like not education specific all come into play in a pretty regular way. You know, I think the, the only big bucket that I don't randomly have is like this expertise in like JavaScript or Python or something. Um, but ChatGPT is helping me with that. So yeah, those are my buckets. This has been episode 100. What were the buckets? Do you remember? I want to say them with me. Tech integration in general, student engagement, admin hat one around managing change, adapting to changing educational landscapes, and then my personal experiences and stories, pursuing those passions. So this has been one of the longer podcasts. Thanks for sticking with it. Um, I haven't done outro music yet. I guess we should do outro music. This is going to be like, <laughs> I'm going to do a bit like from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where I'm going to pause the recording, write outro music, and then put the outro music in so that as you listen to this, it's as though the outro music has been here all along. Maybe I'll have it start fading right now. This is like when Ted hid his or stole his dad's keys, his dad's keys from like three days ago and hid them behind the uh, San Dimas Sheriff's Office or police station. But actually San Dimas has sheriffs. They don't have police. I know that because I lived in San Dimas when this podcast started. No, I hadn't even lived there yet. Anyway, I've lived in a bunch of different places. Bill and Ted are helping me close this out. There's background music right now for you. There wasn't for me, but audio editing is almost like time traveling. You can change stuff after the fact. It's called nonlinear editing. So is this the part where I talk about another 100 episodes? Where I do like a daily thing, a weekly thing? I don't want to do a daily thing. John Ike did a daily thing. That was epic. 180 podcasts and 180 school days. Man, I would have done all of this in half a school year, not in 15 years. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do a daily, but I'm going to keep at it. It'll be good. I've got theme music, so I've got to do it. And this theme music, listen to that. Yeah, that's good stuff. Even though as I'm recording this, it hasn't been written yet. Um, anyway, thanks for joining me for these hundred episodes. Hope you join me for another hundred. And if I didn't say that, like, really, you would have been like, seriously, he didn't say join me for another hundred. So I'm saying that mostly because I feel forced to say that by, I don't know. Um, but yay, here's to another hundred, to a new theme song. Thanks for listening. My name is Bill Selleck. This has been Me Talking.